This weekend, a major movie was released in theaters, F9, The Fast Saga. It's the latest installment in the Fast and Furious franchise. We've taken out planes, trains, tanks. I'm not going to even think about the submarine. The release of F9 has been a long time coming. It was supposed to come out over a year ago, but because of the pandemic, it got delayed. So at the theater, fans were psyched for the macho, car-chasing, explosion-heavy blockbuster. None of the movies take themselves seriously. It's like the stupidest, most ridiculous stunts. I like all the random cameos that happen. They don't care about making anything like uh, fit within previously established story guidelines or physics guidelines. (laughs) And they always seem to bring people back from the dead, which is fun. The release of F9 is an important moment for the movie business. It's a test of whether coming out of the pandemic, it will face a comeback or a crisis. So there's been quite a bit of expectation around this film because this movie in particular has become something of an indicator of when the major studios think audiences will be comfortable and restrictions will be lifted enough to justify economically releasing a movie this expensive right now. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Thursday, July 1st. Coming up on the show, why the latest Fast and Furious movie became the film that Hollywood pinned its hopes on. life had a remote control. You could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. The first Fast and Furious movie came out 20 years ago. Let's go for a little ride. And our colleague Eric Schwartzel says that back then, studio executives probably never thought it would turn into such a money-making success. It's a franchise unlike any in modern-day Hollywood because it started as a movie in 2001 called The Fast and the Furious that was about drag racing in Los Angeles. It was based on a nonfiction journalism article, actually, about the people who do this. Do you remember when the first one came out? Vaguely, vaguely. Because, like, for me, it was, I remember it being kind of a big deal. Like, I was a freshman in high school when that mm-hmm. movie came out. I it was went, 2001. It was 2001. I went to the theater with my best friend, and it defined how we thought about driving cars <laughs> for the rest of our time in high school. And meanwhile, you're like, you're in your like Hyundai Elantra <laughs> cruising the suburban housing division you were picking him up in? Yes, exactly. It was a 1990 Ford Tempo that was sky blue that I kid you not, the speedometer topped out at 80 miles per hour. <laughs> you were not going to win a race against Vin Diesel. <laughs> <laughs> but there must have been a lot of other people like me out there as a freshman, because soon there was a sequel. And another... A new style of racing rules the Tokyo underground. And another. A lot has changed. You're right. And over time, it has grown into these increasingly outlandish 
movies where everything has to top the last installment. And so the casts have grown much bigger. They film all over the world. And the stunts, you know, have gone from racing on the East L.A. bridge to having a car flip a tractor trailer and sending a car into space, what have you. Today, Fast and Furious is a highly lucrative franchise, up there alongside blockbusters like the Jurassic World movies. It's, it's a dinosaur. And Harry Potter. You're a wizard, Harry. I'm a what? Some of the Fast and Furious movies have raked in over a billion dollars in box office sales. Which is why when the pandemic derailed plans for F9's release last year, executives at Universal made a bold decision. Back in March, when the lockdowns first started, Universal announced that they were going to delay its release by a year. And you'll remember back then, like in retrospect, we were all so naive. And in Hollywood, it was a real wake-up call because delaying a movie this important by a year to many people seemed like overkill. Of course, the pandemic dragged on. And as it did, a lot of studios decided to start releasing movies straight to streaming which was okay for ones that were cheaper to make, like, say, The Trial of the Chicago 7 or Nomadland. You can either send them straight to digital rentals. You can sell them or offload them to streaming services like Netflix or Amazon, who might cut you a check for $150 million, $200 million, and say, we'll just take it off your hands while this theatrical situation still shakes itself out. Or you can do something like what Disney's been doing and say, this movie's going to be available in theaters, but it's also going to be available to rent at home for, let's say, 20 or 30 bucks. But that wasn't an option for F9. F9 cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make, so streaming just wasn't going to cut it. Plus, many studios count on the revenue from these big titles to fund other movies that they want to make. Some of the biggest movies, like the F9s that are going to make you hundreds of millions of dollars, those are still largely going exclusively to theaters. Because still, nothing really equates to $1.2, $1.3 billion in worldwide box office right now. The studio chiefs and the filmmakers, who often want to see their stories on the big screen, said... There's a few movies here we just have to wait until the theaters are back online for. So when Universal made the decision to delay its release for a year, what were they waiting for? What did they need to see in the market or in the economy before they would actually decide to put it on theaters? Well, so there were a few things. In China, these movies, especially the last few, have been massive hits. So they needed to make sure that Chinese theaters were open and running. They also needed to make sure that not only were U.S. theaters open, but that capacity restrictions were lifted. So you could go to a theater and you wouldn't necessarily be told, hey, we're only letting, you know, 25% or 40% of people inside. I talked to the head of distribution at Universal on Sunday, and he was telling me that they wanted to wait until all but only a few of the major markets were open and restrictions on capacity were largely lifted. The fact is, there's no way you can release a movie this expensive and have half the population not able to see it in theaters. Was it not a big financial gamble to delay the movie's release, though? Oh, it was. This Fast and Furious movie that came out last weekend had a Super Bowl commercial in February 2020. They had already spent quite a bit of money marketing these movies, and that marketing money quickly becomes a sunk cost. 
I mean, consumers, like, you know, their memories are very, very short. And so you have to essentially, whenever you delay a film, you have to remarket it to get people aware of it again. And studios are very, very cautious about having to do that too many times because the expenses just rack up and up. And the other thing is that, you know, they also have already announced that there's going to be a 10th Fast and Furious film. And so delaying nine delays 10. It screws up their whole slate, actually, because these movies are are what they call tent poles because they are the center of a studio's annual slate. And so if you're postponing one, it affects the budgeting and the release strategies of a whole host of other movies too. What makes the Fast and the Furious movies so expensive? Well, so I think if you if you go see them, there's a lot of destruction on screen. They destroy a ton of stuff. They destroy a ton of buildings. They destroy a ton of cars. They have these massive casts now. There's just so many people popping up in them. And they want to be a very naturally global product. And so, I mean, in this last film, there's a there's a villain of sort of ethnically ambiguous origin. And at one point, they have to go to Tbilisi. I mean, it's it's pretty easy when you see this movie to see the bills piling up. And there's also a lot of expensive talent in these movies. And... Also a lot of cameos, like Cardi B in the latest one. You know, when it comes to, like, sequelology, one thing that studios will rely on is, like, what can you give the audience that they didn't have in the last one? And when it comes to the Fast films, that has meant new actors, new characters. And so for a few movies there, they essentially had three leads. They had Jason Statham, they had Dwayne Johnson, and Vin Diesel. I mean, just trying to do whatever they can to introduce some sort of new element to justify going to see yet another installment. F9 cost roughly $250 million to make. And last weekend, it opened up nationwide. All this talk of fast driving made me want to get on my own ride. A 2001 50cc Vespa. And head to the theater to see what all the hype is about. Oh, yeah. That's after the break. If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. I saw F9 on Tuesday night in Brooklyn. It was my first time back at a theater in over a year. Yeah, can I get one ticket to F9? Where would you like to sit? Uh, the best seat available? Uh, D8. And I wasn't alone. There were at least three dozen other people in the theater with me, laughing and hollering at all the wild fight scenes. I talked to some of the moviegoers outside afterward. Is this the first movie that you've been to since the pandemic? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And how did it feel to be back in the theater? Great. Yeah. There's something about the like collective energy. Yeah, it's not just watching something that's fun, it's you're watching people have fun. Yeah. Yeah. Someone's cringing, someone's laughing. It's an experience that you have to do with other people, and I don't feel like that happens with a lot of other movies. 
In its opening weekend, F9 brought in about $70 million in the U.S. The $70 million opening for Fast puts it in the middle of the opening weekends for this franchise, not as high as some, not as low as others. It wasn't necessarily the Christmas morning that Universal might have wanted, but it was very good. It was very strong. What's particularly encouraging for a lot of studio execs, whether they're at Universal or Arrival, is that it's getting steadily better. So we had uh, Godzilla versus Kong come out, and that did pretty well. And then we had the sequel to A Quiet Place, and that did very well. And then we had F9, and that's done even better. So did you watch the movie? I did. I did. I went to a screening. Me and two friends went, and it was great. We had a very fine time at the movies. And, and what did you think of the movie? It delivers exactly what you expect it to. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't mean that as an underhanded compliment. I'm a huge fan of Broadway musicals, and there's something very similar in the Fast and Furious movies, I'll explain, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> where there is a, like, there's a choreography to these chases where there's, there's like, build and release, build and release, build and release, and then there's this, like, final moment that in like the musical where everyone starts dancing or like the the chord resolves itself and we all break into the the medley like there's this like final <laughs> moment in every chase that gives that satisfaction as well this is a, a level of sophisticated analysis about these movies that I was not expecting yeah no i think there's actually quite a bit to say about them these these movies are like i think of them as products and it's it's like if you look at any product that gets so many people to show up and spend money to see it or spend time with it, like you're going to be able to discern a lot about what works and what is appealing in them. As like you know, silly as they may seem, because it's like Vin Diesel cocking a shotgun and saying, "Not on my watch." Uh-huh. <laughs> and Eric says that as lighthearted as the Fast and Furious movies may seem. The actors take the fight scenes very seriously. I was at a party and I was talking to someone who said, hey, have you, have you ever noticed, because this person knew someone who worked on the films, have you ever noticed that none of these characters ever lose a fight? Like, in one movie, it looks like they're going to fight. I will beat your ass like a Cherokee drum. Maybe one day we'll find out. Then a prison riot breaks out, and that distracts them. And then in this other movie, they're fighting and a helicopter appears out of nowhere and fires a missile at them. And it forms like a fault line in the parking garage they're fighting on and physically separates them from fighting. Eric decided to investigate. And he discovered that it wasn't just a coincidence. The actors actually did make demands about how they're portrayed in fight scenes. Then I started talking to people who worked on the films mostly, you know, people behind the scenes. And it was one of those things where I would always say, like, you know, hey, I saw you worked on a Fast and Furious movie, you know. I've heard that, like, that there's a lot of conversation that goes into, like, how those guys look on screen. And it was one of those things where, like, almost to a person, they would be this, like, heavy sigh. And (laughs) and then they would say, you know, no, it actually goes even further than, from a screenwriting perspective, it actually goes into even more, like, aesthetic choices and choreography that ensures that every action has an equal and opposite reaction if these two guys are fighting one another. No kidding. Like, you'll see Jason Statham throw Dwayne Johnson through a wall of glass. 
and then like eight seconds later, Dwayne Johnson will throw Jason Statham through a wall of glass. It's almost down to like an equal number of punches in some scenes to make sure that these guys aren't one-upping one another. Sometimes the actors even make agreements with the studio that prevent them from coming out of a fight looking like a wimp. So in one case, Jason Statham had notes about how badly he could get beaten up on screen. Vin Diesel's sister, who's also his producing partner, has been known to attend fight choreography sessions to make sure that her brother looks like he's not getting beaten up too hard. The actors have been known to stop by the editing room and watch the fights as they're being put together to make sure that they look okay. I mean, as, as one editor told me, you know, there's these, these stories of actresses going into the editing room to make sure they had more close-ups than their co-stars. And this guy said, these guys just want more muscles. <laughs> Vin Diesel, Jason Statham, and Dwayne Johnson all declined to comment on Eric's reporting. Why does Universal say it's willing to do this, to accommodate these requests? You know, they said they produce these fights to make sure every character has a moment and that they're all seen as formidable opponents. I guess, you know, saying that it would be a boring film if it looked like it was an easy fight and that each fast character is a hero to someone watching. You know, and I think another thing that that people making the film would allow for, even as they kind of maybe chuckled to themselves about what was happening, one thing that they would allow for is that, like, we wouldn't be on the ninth film if these guys, like, killed each other. (laughs) Like, if these characters (laughs) died at the end of a fight. So I do think we have to allow for the fact that we don't go to the movies expecting every fight to play out exactly as as it would in real life. Yeah, in in real life, I think I would be dead in the first movie. (laughs) I I would be running in the other direction and saying, Siri, call 911. (laughs) Just like the characters in the movie, the franchise itself shows no signs of weakness, with two more movies planned and talk of possible spinoffs. And this weekend's success at the box office is signaling to Hollywood that the movie theaters are back and ready to put the pandemic behind them. We've seen a number of movies do well since the theaters have reopened, but it's been hard to breathe a sigh of relief just yet because there hasn't been anything that's really blown expectations out of the water. Um, And it's also been hard to know whether or not some of these movies are doing well just because there's pent-up demand that will peter out as the summer goes on. And I think the reason why Fast 9 proved to be a really good case study in that is because it was a known entity. We've seen how the previous installments have done we know, I mean, there's been nine of them. People know what they're getting when they go to a Fast and Furious movie. Its release and its successful opening weekend is an indicator that things should be looking up for some of these bigger titles going forward. That's all for today, Thursday, July 1st. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. If you like the show, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We're out every weekday afternoon. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.